Amen. As you're being seated, if you will go ahead and find your Bibles, open them up or turn them on to Matthew chapter 5. We'll also be looking towards the end of the message at Romans chapter 8. Well, the other day, the girls in my family went to go see the movie Cinderella. So whenever they got back, I was asking them, how did it go? And I said, well, how did it end? And it's a fairy tale, so how do, how do fairy tales end? And they all lived happily ever after. Now, there's parts of that story that they don't tell because Cinderella and Prince Charming get married and, and they don't tell you that once they get married that Cinderella discovers that Prince Charming gets toothpaste on the mirror every time he brushes his teeth and that he bites his nails, that he doesn't like shopping and that sometimes he plays Xbox till 2 in the morning. And uh, they don't tell you that Cinderella is actually OCD about cleaning, that she enjoys buying $2,000 pairs of glass slippers at Neiman Marcus, that she talks to animals a lot, and she's kind of haunted by her past. They don't tell you that part of the story. We are taught in the society in which we live. Our culture teaches us that there will be tension that exists until love wins, especially in relationships. There's tension that exists, but then the villain is removed Love wins, and then once love wins, we live happily ever after. And so we subtly begin to convey and embrace this concept that peace will be found in my life once the conflict ends. If I can just get past that, if they would just move on, then I would find peace. But the reality is that if you and I want to live happily, It requires that we learn how to find peace even in the midst of conflict. And so today we launch off into a new series. It's entitled Finding Peace. Now this is going to be a practical series. We're going to look at scriptures in the Bible that deal with conflict, that deal with peace. Uh, But we'll also be talking a lot about our relationships and how we can find peace within the relationships. Now one of the things that we're doing in this series is we're inviting you to submit a picture that you might have taken that conveys peace. Whatever it is, it really speaks peace to you. Uh, you can email that to office at murphychurch.com. And once one picture each week will be chosen, and we'll use that as the sermon illustration. Uh, this is a picture of my son uh, last year. Uh, he was with our beloved Labrador uh, Addie. And whenever I look at that picture, his last fall, just a boy and his dog, to me, that just conveys a a great sense of peace. Now, let me ask this question of you. How many of you are really busy? How many of you are really busy in life? I mean, you've got a lot of things to do. In our society, it is really easy to get busy doing a lot of things and in the process forget who we are. And that's nothing really new. In fact, in Jesus' day, the same problems exist. And so one day, he takes his followers up to a mountainside. And there he has them sit down and he begins to teach. Now, I can imagine the scene, the beautiful mountain view, the fresh air, perhaps a tranquil stream flowing in the distance, sitting in a calm meadow, the flowers rustling in the wind, And Jesus begins to teach us, this is who you are. This is who my children are supposed to be. 
At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us what has, been com- has become call- come to be called the Beatitudes. And in verse 9 of chapter 5, here's what Jesus said. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Now, if we could say that together as a church on the count of three, a one and a two and a three. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Now, I want to drill down into this verse, and I want to pull out three realities, three realities that we need to take and employ in our lives that Jesus taught us here. The first is that as a follower of Christ, I am to be a peacemaker. As a follower of Christ, I am to be a peacemaker. In 2009, Stacy and I moved into the house in which we lived, and you know she was doing laundry one night, and we were talking in the kitchen. And as we were talking, mid-sentence, she stops and goes, you smell that? I'm like, my smeller's not very good. I don't smell it. Well, she was running back to the laundry area, and in the back of our house is where the laundry room is, and we have this, this light fixture that's in the laundry room, and it's really good for hanging clothes on. Now, I really don't recommend hanging clothes on light fixtures because here's what happens. The light was off when she hung the, hung the blanket on the fixture, and then I turned it on. So by the time she gets back to the laundry room, laying on the ground is this blanket, and it's on fire. And around it is all the other laundry that's waiting to go into the washing machine. And in the next room, just one wall removed from the fire, is our then three-month-old baby, McKenna, who was sleeping soundly. And so we had a problem. We had a fiery inferno going in the laundry room, and I had to do something about it. So I'm in the laundry room, and I need something wet to help with this fire. So over here I have the garage, and I can go out into the garage, and I've got something wet out there. I've got a gasoline can, and I could use that. Or I have the bathroom, and in the bathroom I have a sink, and I can get some water, and I can use that. Well, thankfully I chose water, and the fiery inferno was put out, and McKenna slept happily ever after. Do you smell that? I'm not talking about barbecue. What's on fire in your life right now? What's burning? Where are the fires that are threatening to destroy the life that you've built, threatening to destroy your most precious relationships? They're threatening to hurt your children. Where are those fires in your life right now? And how are you going to respond? Are you going to reach for the gas can? Are you going to reach for the water? Are you going to try to put the fires out, or are you going to react in such a way that you inflame the situation and make it even worse? Colette Sandy and her husband, Ken Sandy, have a wonderful ministry called Peacemaker Ministries, and she says when it comes to conflict, there are three common reactions. The first reaction is that we try to escape it, and a lot of us, if we were to look at our conflict styles Your conflict style is avoidance. You want to run as far away from conflict as you possibly can. Now, sometimes running away from conflict is wise, particularly if there's immediate danger. If you're walking down a trail and a grizzly bear jumps out, uh, you may want to make your escape at that time, just saying. But whenever we run away from our problems, it doesn't solve our problems. Sometimes we try to escape our problems by denying them. What? I don't have any problems. 
Nah, there's no conflict in my life. It's not a big deal that my wife just gave me U-Haul coupons for our anniversary. That's not a big deal. It's okay. I don't have any problems. Sometimes we try to escape our problems by blaming. Somebody else's fault. It's my parents' fault. They didn't potty train me correctly. If I wouldn't have grown up in this area, then I wouldn't be this way. I don't know why these things happen to me. I'm just trying to be a blessing, and it just seems like everybody's always trying to pick fights with me, and sometimes we try to escape conflict by blaming all conflict on other people. Well, whenever you try to run from your problems, two things happen. Number one, you prolong the problems. Instead of finding solutions, you just extend that problem and often in the process make it worse. The second thing is you begin to grow bitterness within your heart. You see, when we're angry about something, if we don't resolve that anger in a healthy way quickly, eventually the anger begins to dig roots or grow roots within our soul. And we become a bitter person. And then instead of being angry about something, you're just angry. And everywhere you go, the bitterness that is within you is seen by others. Now, a second reaction that Sandy talks about is to attack. Now, both running from your problems and attacking your problems are not healthy ways to deal with conflict. Now, sometimes we attack with our words. Somebody upsets us. And so we start putting them down. You always do this. We call them names. We try to make them feel badly, and we forget in the process that our words can hurt people. Sometimes we gossip. We talk behind people's backs. We damage their reputation. We try to gather other people to our side so that we can have our team within the conflict. And in the process of gossiping about people, we are subtly attacking others. And then thirdly, sometimes we actually physically use force. Now, there may be a time where you need to defend yourself. Perhaps you're under a physical attack, and so you need to deal with that conflict by physically defending yourself. But rarely is physical force the way to get our way. Now, when you attack conflict, instead of being a peacemaker, you become a peacebreaker. And when you attack conflict and you attack other people, understand you damage relationships You break trust, and you destroy what you love. So Sandy says there's a third way, and this is a healthy way of dealing with conflict, and that is to try to work it out. Now, as you try to work out conflict, there's several things that you can do. Number one, sometimes we just need to overlook it. There's an old saying, don't sweat the small stuff. Not everything in life has to be analyzed and broken down and worked through. In everybody's life, there are some things that come in every day that you've just got to overlook. You have to learn, if you're going to be a happy person, you're going to have to learn to be a forgiving person. If you're going to have a healthy marriage, if you're going to have a healthy relationship with your parents, with your children, with those people that are special to you, you have to learn to be a forgiving person. Of all the gifts that God has given us, Grace is amongst the best, and grace is often the last thing we're willing to extend to other people. Everybody makes mistakes. No one is perfect. We all have bad days, and sometimes you just have to breathe a little bit. Cut some people some slack. If you expect everyone to be as perfect as you are, you're always going to be in conflict 
with everyone. And you're going to set expectations for everybody around you that they can never meet. And so sometimes you just need to overlook the situation. Don't sweat it. It's not that big of a deal. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. Now, a second thing that you can do is talk about it. Later on in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said something that is very powerful, and if you employ this in your life, it can make a huge difference. Settle matters quickly while on the way. Now, what he was conveying is, let's say you're, you're going through life, you're in the midst of daily life, and something comes up. Instead of letting that problem fester, instead of going home and thinking about it, instead of talking about the person, letting it tear you up inside, try to deal with it right then and settle the matter quickly so that it doesn't grow and become something that cannot be settled quickly. So many times if we would just talk to people, it could solve so many of our conflicts. But we don't want to talk to people. What we like to do is talk about people. As a pastor, sometimes people come to me and they say, you know, I'm having this problem with so-and-so, and and they start explaining the problem, and I, I almost always stop them and say, okay, well, let me ask you this question. What did they say whenever you talked to them about this? And 90% of the time I get, uh, uh, but I, I, I hadn't talked to them about it. Jesus teaches us that we need to talk to one another, try to settle matters quickly so that they don't grow into something that is incapable of being solved in an easy manner. Now, a third thing you can do in working things out is get help. I want to encourage each of us to have some people in our lives that are wisdom advisors, some go-to people in your life that whenever you need counsel that is wise, that you can go to them and say, help me understand this, help me think through this. Now, whenever you begin selecting those people in your life to be your wisdom advisors, make sure that they love the Lord. Make sure that they actually have wisdom. I would not recommend Google as one of your primary wisdom advisors, okay? There's a lot of people that are on TV, a lot of people spouting different things that may not really give you godly wisdom, but each of us need to have people in our lives that walk with the Lord, that can speak wisdom to us, sometimes can tell us, hey, you're going the wrong direction here. You need to change. We need these people in our lives. It is not a sign of weakness whenever you need wise counsel. Find those people that can be your go-to people that whenever you need help, they can help you look at the situation and walk through it. Jesus says we are to be peacemakers. Now, there's a second big truth taught in that passage, and that is that as a follower of Christ, I am blessed. The passage says the peacemakers are blessed for they will be called sons of God. Now, notice the language here. The peacemakers are what? Blessed. What does that word blessed mean? Well, it conveys a deep-seated, joyful happiness. And so Jesus is painting a contrast here. You have the pressures of the world versus the joy of being. Now, one of the things that Jesus never promised is a trouble-free life. In fact, if you look at Matthew 5, right after this saying, he talks about rejoicing and being glad when they persecute you on account of the name of Christ. He says that's the same way they treated the prophets before you. And so Jesus taught that you're going to have troubles, you're going to have conflict, you're going to have difficulty. But he also promised us that we can be blessed even in the midst of the conflict. Blessed are the peacemakers. As human beings, 
being is one of the things that makes us unique. We're human beings. Being is where life is really lived. Now, innately, we know this. And that's why uh, whenever you find yourself on a beach watching the sunset, listening to the waves, there's this sense of being, this sense of being alive. For me, I, I enjoy the mountains. And I, I say sometimes I never feel more alive than when I'm in the mountains. I just have that sense of being and, and life is being lived. Whenever you hold uh, your newborn daughter or that little grandson and you smell the smell of that little baby and you feel that tender touch, there's that sense of life and that sense of being. Uh, uh, this is why uh, when, when someone passes away and we talk about their life, when you go to a funeral, when you hear people sitting around talking about someone that has just left this life, very rarely do we talk about their accomplishments. We may read them in the bio, we may make reference to them, but when people reminisce and talk about someone's life, they talk about those moments, those experiences, those life lessons. Usually it's just little stories that happened along the journey of being. Being is where you live life. It is in being that you will find life's blessings. It is the experience of being human that God has designed you for. A couple weeks ago, Stacy and I uh, loaded up the kids and we went to Austin, Texas to see some of our friends. We used to live there. And so we spent a couple nights uh, in a hotel. Well, you've never lived until you've spent a couple of nights with three little kids in a hotel room. Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, I have a, I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. And so whenever you, you, you're locked into one room together, uh, you, you experience a lot of family bonding. You know what I mean? Well, one of the things that I, I notice, though, about little kids is they just know how to be. Just watch them play. Watch them live. There's the sense of they're just being. That's why you have to tell them five, six times to do something because they just want to be. They just want to live life and enjoy life. But as we grow older, through the course of life, we often forget how to be blessed. We lose sight of our blessing. Now, why is it that we lose sight of our blessing? Well, sometimes it's our sin nature. We're sinful. We do things that we shouldn't. We make mistakes. Our pride begins to take over. We seek control of our lives, and we forget that ultimately we are who we are because of God. And we find ourselves filled with anxiety instead of trusting God and living our lives in faith. Sometimes we become entitled, and we start thinking that life owes us certain things, that people owe us certain things, and because of that, we lose our blessing. For a lot of us, the reason why we lose our blessing is because of busyness. We live in the most connected age of etern- of all time. And in our, in our phones, we have these George Jetson-like capabilities. And you are now connected with people all the time. Everywhere you go, people text you. They want you to respond immediately. And there's just so much to do. 
You've got to make sure the house is taken care of. You've got to make sure the yard is trimmed. And you trim it, and then it grows again. And you've got laundry that you've got to do, and you've got meals that you've got to prepare, and you have bills that have to be paid, and you have to get the child, the, the son to baseball, and you have to get the daughter to dance. And you've, you've got, oh, yeah, I've also got, I've got this barbecue at church. And, I, I, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to pray. And, and, oh, no, the day got by me, and I forgot to do my Christianity. And a lot of times we start thinking about our Christianity as something that we're supposed to do. A Christian is something that you are. Being a Christian, you are a Christian. And because you are a Christian, that's why you do spiritual things. But sometimes in the process of doing, we lose sight of our blessing and we lose sight of who we've been designed to be. Sometimes we value the wrong things. In our mind, we desire inner happiness. We desire blessing. And so we begin thinking that the way that I'm going to get those blessings is from external things. And so if I can just get this, then I will feel this way. And so we think to ourselves, if I can just get that new job, if we could just uh, get this new house, this car, if I could only find my soulmate, then I will be the person that I've always wanted to be. But eventually you end up with a lot of things, but not a lot of blessedness. There's nothing wrong with having nice things in life and desiring to do well in your work or in your academics, uh, desiring to have a nice car. Those things are all good. They're they're an enjoyable part of life, but they're not going to bring you that deep-seated blessedness that Jesus talked about. They're not going to bring you that inner peace that we all long for in life. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. And then he said, for they will be called the sons of God. And there's a third truth that I want you to look at today. And that is that as a believer in Christ, I am a child of God. Being a child of God means that I am part of God's family. That when I believe in Christ, that I belong to him. He sees me in Christ. And so I am his child, I am part of God's family because I am his child. I'm, I'm in the process of reading a book called Decision Points. It's written by former President George W. Bush, and I'm reading it because that time in our nation's history was a very prolific time. I think we all agree with that, and so I'm trying to kind of get into his mind and figure out what he was thinking during those years of 2000 to 2008. And early in the book, he begins talking about his family and the relationships that he had with his parents. And there was one quote there that really stood out to me. Uh, He wrote, As I got older, I came to see that my parents' love was unconditional. I know because I tested it. I had two car wrecks when I was 14, the legal driving age back then. My parents still loved me. I borrowed Dad's car carelessly charged in reverse and tore the door off. I poured vodka in the fishbowl and killed my little sister Doro's goldfish. At times, I was surly, demanding, and brash, and despite it all, my parents still loved me. Now, this was the part that stood out to me. He wrote, eventually their patient love affected me. When When you know you have unconditional love, There is no point in rebellion and no need to fear failure. 
I was free to follow my instincts, enjoy my life, and love my parents as much as they loved me. Now, do you realize this? Do you realize that as a child of God, that God's love towards you is not based on your loveliness? God doesn't love you because of all the wonderful things that you say and do. God loves you because you are his child. And you are his child because as a believer, you are in Christ. And he loves you with an unconditional, eternal love because he sees you in Christ. Yes, we still do things that we shouldn't. We're going to talk about in a few weeks how our choices have consequences, and sometimes those consequences bring conflict into our relationships, and how do we deal with that? There's always consequences to our choices, and whenever we do things that we shouldn't do, yes, it causes strain in our lives, but it doesn't steal the love that God has for his children. When you're God's child, nothing is going to separate you from that love. When your faith is in Christ, you belong to him. You're part of the family. That's an unconditional love. And so I want to land this sermon today by reading a couple scriptures. I know that's a novel idea to read the Bible in church, okay? But I want to read a couple scriptures from Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 and verse 14. Here the Bible says, All those led by God's Spirit are God's sons. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So, so he says in verse 15, you did not receive the spirit, little s, of slavery, that you're in bondage and that you're supposed to be in fear of your master. But as a child of God, you received the Holy Spirit adoption into the family, and you stand in grace, not wrath, and you're able to call out to God, Abba, Father. Now, that's an Aramaic word, basically being the domestic term for dad. It's a very uh, common language, and, and Jesus says, you could actually call God your Abba. Verse 16 says, the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. And if children, also heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Well, as you continue reading the chapter, Paul discusses how the creation, the world in which we live, is groaning like a, a woman giving birth to a baby because it's still entrapped, it's in bondage. Yet at the same time, even as we go through difficulty in this world, Paul reminds us, that nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. And so in verse 35, here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or anguish or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? No, in all these things... We are more than victorious. The King James says more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded 
that not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you know that you have the unconditional love of the Heavenly Father, there is no point in rebellion and no need to fear failure because you are free to follow the Holy Spirit. Enjoy life. Embrace being. Live in blessing. And love your Heavenly Father with all your heart. So Jesus tells us, the peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Would you be so kind as to stand with me, please, and bow your heads as we come to a time of commitment. The band's going to come. They're going to lead us in worship. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, uh, it's always my joy to do so. I'll be here at the front. I'll also be around after the service, and if I can encourage you, pray with you, uh, it is always my delight to do so. I am aware that as we come into church today that we all bring different stories with us, that in some of our lives right now the fires of conflict are raging. I'm aware that we all have certain common desires. We desire to have blessing in our life. We desire to find peace. We desire to be a part of our Lord's family. And so right now I want to pray for you. Heavenly Father, I pray that we might find peace. I pray, Lord, that we might find peace even during times of difficulty. That we might find tranquility in knowing that we are loved by you. That all things come from you and ultimately belong to you. And so, Lord, help us to have attitudes actions, to speak words of wisdom. Help us, Lord, to bring water and not gasoline to the fires of conflict. Lord, as we deal with situations that are often difficult to find solutions for, I pray that we might seek solutions that bring glory to you. Help it, Lord, not to be about who wins, but help it to be about increasing your name and your fame. And I pray, Lord, that the testimony of our lives, that as people look back on the lives that we are living, that they will have memories of being. Memories whenever we walk together and laugh together and talk together and experienced what it is to be alive. Help us, Lord, to recapture our sense of blessing and to live our lives in the delight of you. Lord, help us to use our one and only life to draw others to your joy as well. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.